You're listening to Cloud Security Reinvented, a podcast for security leaders with a focus on the cloud. Learn best practices from fellow security professionals and how they disconnect from it all at the end of the day. Cloud Security Reinvented. Good morning, or depending on when you are in the world, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Welcome to Cloud Security Reinvented. I'm your host, Andy Ellis. Before I introduce our guest for the week, a quick word from our sponsor, Orca Security. Orca provides agentless security and compliance for your public cloud infrastructure, enabling you to detect and prioritize security risks in minutes, not months. I'm here today with Allison Miller, CISO and VP of Trust at Reddit. Welcome, Allison. Hi, Andy. Thanks for joining us today. You know, across a security career, you know, we as professionals hopefully grow, but the world that we're in changes around us. And so today I'd like to get some insight for you, from you, especially as we think about how the world changed from on-premise, where most of us started our world, to cloud that has become pretty much the default model for IT infrastructure. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your career journey. You know, I went back and I, I groveled through your LinkedIn and discovered that your first two internships were actually in marketing. And then you went into InfoSec doing operations at GlaxoSmithKline. What was up with that? Like, did you want to be a marketer? Decided, oh my God, this is awful. Was those just the internships you found? What happened there? Well, those were the internships that I found. But I was interested in marketing. I was interested in business and commerce and communications. And that's what drew me into technology. It wasn't so much about the bits and bytes and the mechanics of how things worked, but it's about what we could do with the technology that kind of excited me and drew me in. And I really wanted to work for Wired Magazine. <laughs> so yep. because they were, at the time, they were just so cutting edge and some of the ideas they were expressing in that magazine, I just wanted to be involved. And so while I was ostensibly in marketing, I think of it more as I got to be at kind of ground zero for some of the things that they were doing, leveraging online technology and, of course, you know, what they were, the, the discourse around it at the time. And then after that, though, uh, sort of what happened, though, is that really made me understand, like, how important some of these things were going to be to protect when it came to using these technologies for communications or business or commerce. And so I got really interested in that angle because the paranoid gene runs deep in me. And so I know so many people who fell in to cybersecurity as a career, but I am one of the folks who I actively pursued it. And it just took me a little while to kind of make my way there. And like, like a lot of us, it was a pioneering spirit that got me there because I helped kick off the creation of a new function at the pharmaceutical company where I was working. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I actually started at MIT's technology review as one of their first web developers. Mm -hmm. So I definitely get that same feel of like, you wanted to help create this content, but at the same time, like the tech problems were so interesting at the time. For sure. Uh, yeah. And then you've had, you know, it's interesting because I've followed your career for a long time. And I think of there's like core infosec, and then there's these cool adjacencies and you've sort of done both of them. You know, I think between, you know, Visa and PayPal. Uh, and then tagged, you're like product risk, you know, consumer risk, fraud, you know, all the while also doing core security. So it wasn't just these adjacents. It's also like, how do we protect the core business and how do we do these cool things next to it? What, right. What's that like? 
Well, I've joked with people a few times that I've unsuccessfully tried to leave in information security about eight times <laughs> in my career. And I, I keep getting pulled back. And I think it comes back to that impulse that I was mentioning for these technologies to work in commerce or retail or communications. There are things that need to be protected. And my experience in core InfoSec was sort of layers one through seven in the stack, if you will. But yep. then these adjacencies that I got into were about, well, how can the product itself be abused or manipulated? Or how can the presence be abused in different ways? And, and then how can you protect that? And then bringing those lessons back into core InfoSec. So you mentioned fraud, for example, and product risk. Those, the, the lessons I learned there I've used over and over again, specifically with fraud being able to use data modeling in order to not so much predict, but kind of, you know, identify aberrant behaviors or things that indicate something bad is going on. The parallels between that and what might one might do in spam prevention or other types of abuse prevention mm -hmm. or in using other sort of like intrusion detection technologies, there's a lot of lessons that you can kind of lather, rinse, repeat in order to build better protections. And then you've actually moved between, I think, two big industries. I guess you could you know, split it up between both financial services and high tech. You know, mm -hmm. How are those the same and how are those different? Well, I think that I think that big, big companies have a lot in common with other big companies <laughs> and smaller mm -hmm. companies have a lot in common with uh, smaller companies. So the. I, I guess what I mean is, so working in financial services, what's one, running through ones and zeros is money. And then if you're in online media or sort of high tech, maybe what the running through all of the ones and zeros, it's like you're pushing data from one place to another. But I, I find that although the industries are different, like let's say pharmaceuticals or financial services, they have a lot more regulations they need to navigate. The, the sort of foundational elements are similar at scale. Yep. <laughs> and then if you're working with a much smaller concern like a startup, then those look different or might not exist in the same way that they do at a big company. So uh, I think that while I have spent my entire career in information security or trying to get away from it, <laughs> <laughs> my education, my undergrad and some, you know, master's type degrees were in economics and business. So for me, for me, money movement is just another system with dynamics where things are moving around. So moving from that over to advertising or from that over to social media, it's just sort of, it's, it's easy to surf that. Yep. So I think your current job has a, an additional, you know, InfoSec plus or trying to get away from InfoSec in the, the VP of trust role. What does trust actually mean? And there's lots of conversations in the world, but from your perspective. What is that role and how is it different than security? Right. Well, a couple things. So we were very thoughtful when we were thinking about what to call it and what to call sort of that umbrella concept. And I sort of debated back and forth between risk and trust. And the reason why I wanted to go with trust is because, you know, we're a community of communities, the way that you actually act in community with folks is through building relationships. You have to have trust. It's a foundational functional support. And so I really wanted to key into that positive thing that we were creating for the product, for our customers and users and the ecosystem, rather than risk, which 
I'm also doing risk management, but yeah. it's risk is feels like it's got a little a lot more of that preventing the bad thing. And I actually want to leverage what we're doing with safety and security and privacy in order to really like raise up this good thing that we're building. So it's sort of a more positive stated goal. But for me, that's what trust is. What trust, trust, the components of trust are integrity, empowerment, and transparency. So integrity, doing what we say we're going to do at scale, which there are things in common across any of those sub things, right? Um, and policy enforcement, whether that's on the product side or whether that's internally to the company, that's a big part of integrity. Then empowerment. So we're trying to put struts in place that empower our communities, or we're putting processes and tech in place that's going to empower our developers. It's a big piece of our offering. And then last, transparency. So the funny thing about InfoSec professionals is they're the ones who are paid to keep the secrets secret. <laughs> right. If it's not something that needs to be kept secret, I feel like externalizing it, if that's helpful and helps engender trust and helps build folks' confidence in what we're doing, I, I want to be able to do that. So I'm very proud of our transparency report, for example, and I see more things coming because it's sort of the promise of open source. It's the promise of what folks are trying to do related to privacy. So I'm a big believer in transparency. Yeah. Thanks for letting me sing some praises. No, I, well, I love it. And I think the our whole industry has had this problem that we're known as the department of no. Mm -hmm. right? And I often talk about you know why organizations make bad decisions is product managers are trying to get product out quickly and security people are trying to keep bad product from getting out. Right. Rather than both of them being focused on how do we get out good, trustworthy product quickly? That's right. Which would lead to, I think, better outcomes than the current dysfunction a lot of our teams end up in. Right. For sure. So there's a sort of it parallel. I've been in a lot of roles where I'm asked in all seriousness with a straight face, can you do something so that our developers can no longer release insecure code? And I'm like, sure, just don't let the developers release any code. But when it comes to releasing new code or creating new products, the folks who are actually best able to mind its riskiness are the folks who are designing it, who are creating it. They know it inside and out. And if you just give them a few tools, typically they they're going to be able to go to those better outcomes and will be incentivized to go to those better outcomes without having to have the department of no chase them down. Yep. So, you know, I think we've talked about your how your world has changed, but let's talk about how the cloud has changed things. So, when you look at how you've approached security across your career, like how has that changed in your approach to security as a result of cloud's prevalence? Sure. So in the before times, before cloud, it was all about making sure your perimeter was as crunchy as possible. All ingress and egress points were monitored. And then you had maybe some things going on inside the those walls where you were managing the managing and enforcing policies. So obviously that's all out the window because there's <laughs> that we have to operate without a perimeter. One of the things that I noticed somewhat early on is that and when you are dealing with the securing the product, not application layer layer seven, but the actual product at layer eight, like we can't really use the firewall concept anymore because we're inviting people. <laughs> we're inviting right. new people in to connect to us, to interact with our services and such. 
And so that whole model just, it's very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult to even frame it anymore. So working without a perimeter has been a big piece of it. The more software as a service that your company is leveraging to scale, the, yeah. the more that you have just sort of expanded out your perimeter or, or gotten rid of it completely. The other thing, which is the, the other major thing that I noticed that I think is related to going perimeterless is the role of data. Mm -hmm. So data, it's always been about the data. It's been about the bits and bytes. It's been about the packets. But now there's just data is not just what we protect. It's through using data that we design the protective layers. It's through our ability to process and classify and analyze using data and automation that we are able to protect our data and our automation. So it, that's, that's been an interesting thing to watch as well. So if I look from the outside at your industry, I bet I have a lot of preconceived notions about what cloud security looks like for you. What would surprise me about cloud security from the inside? I think just with the framing that goes with being a cloud native concern. Yep. <laughs> so having worked in places where pretty much everything was on-prem and anything that was cloud-based was really kind of given a bit of side eye and a lot of extra scrutiny, which is wise. It's just a huge difference when it's just assumed. It's just assumed that it's going to be cloud. It's just assumed that it will be hosted by a third party. It's just assumed that you will negotiate access to whatever telemetry you need to monitor it. So that's the, I don't know if it, it's almost, you'd have to experience it for yourself to understand what it's like, but it's just, that's reality. That's folks don't necessarily think of sort of the alternatives. Yeah. And I think I've, I've run into that myself. I've seen how easily like a cloud native company just discards vendors. Like, oh, you're using a, a SaaS vendor for something and you don't like them this week. So you replace them with someone else and coming out of a company that didn't do that. That for me was the most shocking. I'm, I'm like, wait, you just throw away a vendor on the drop of a hat because you didn't like it. Like we right. got stuck with things for decades. Right. This, the switching costs and sort of the, the decisions. They're very different. Not to say that they, they completely go away, right? Although some of the cloud providers are very smartly trying to figure out how to make things a little more portable and easily mobile between the platforms, but it, it definitely changes the dynamic versus. And also, I think maybe there's an expectation too of vendors that they're going to be interoperable in a way that won't require you know, hundreds of engineer hours to integrate the pieces together, which is also. Yeah, that is, that okay. is often nice. Mm -hmm. If you look at the practices that we had in the pre-cloud era, which ones most resonate for you today as important fundamentals? Well, I have kind of a boring answer to that, which is QA. Okay. <laughs> and I've just been, because when you are, when you have a certified lab that you set up to test things in and you try and, you know, test every angle, you know, unit testing, but also integration testing, it's a little bit different than how you might, the sort of the frame is the same in the importance of it is the same, but how you go about it is different. And one of the things that I wonder about with cloud is because it's so easy to expand it out and it's so easy to, to roll out new services and such, underestimating the complexity of the environment and like the inability to get kind of the true 
integration test where you can really understand all of the different things that might happen, it's real. So the cloud has allowed scale, but scale has begot complexity and complexity is it's the, you know, it's the enemy, (laughs) it's the enemy of security in a lot of ways. It's, it's the clearest and most present dangerous complexity. Yep. So conversely, what practice is still common that we should have gotten rid of a long time ago? Yeah. And I, this one was hard. So the best that I came up with is it does, it feels like it might not be directly related to cloud per se, but I've been thinking about how now that we are perimeterless, we mm-hmm. have to provide a lot more scrutiny around what's going on inside the mushy middle, like pretending that we still did have a perimeter, which affects DLP and things that maybe our employees are doing. It could also affect like agents and scripts and such. And what I was just thinking is that we can't go on putting 100,000 different agents and pieces of software on endpoints. And so just sort of adding, adding layers, we're adding more layers of complexity, even to, you know, our client workstations and such. So one would think that it would be, we would be able to be more lightweight at our endpoints, whether those are sort of the clients or even on our servers, but Mm -hmm. can we please get more lightweight and then let the cloud do the work as opposed to overloading some of these endpoints with agents and basically choking off all productivity. <laughs> right. I think that plays back to your comment about the importance of QA and the challenge of doing it in a complex world. Yes, for sure. So for you, what has been the biggest surprise or do you see as the biggest opportunity of growth in the cloud era? Well, I, I do love the idea that we could be more experimental and sort of forward thinking just in general related to some of the services that we adopt when those services do sort of come with native interoperability to our different cloud providers and sort of the the services that we're going to be layering on top of them it's because the switching costs might be lower it feels like maybe we can actually try different things out and be more innovative in security versus you know having to wait so long for things to get to a certain point in the maturity curve before we can make these huge investments not just in you know cash but also in the people time it takes to actually put these things in place so i think that's something that is really interesting and something i'm looking forward to i'm also looking forward to there have been things that we've been talking about for years in in financial services for example data devaluation Mm-hmm. Or some things that I've heard being discussed in things like healthcare research related to differential privacy. And I, I feel like um, I feel like some of those things are going to be made possible because of the advancements, not just in cloud, but also in machine learning and, and data management. And those are that will be great. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a real difficulty associated with having the human in the loop. If you can remove the human from the loop, that allows for better scale and potentially also for better outcomes related to monitoring and privacy and things like that. Yeah, no, I'm really, I'm cautiously excited about differential privacy. And there's some some great places it will be helpful. I just sometimes worry people oversell it and try to use it in places where it won't be as, as powerful. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, where else do we see things like that? Blockchain. Every, yeah. Well, uh, no, when I'm on the other side of it, I don't know that I'm cautiously optimistic about it at all. Okay. Uh, yeah. So 
we've learned a lot across our careers. Some of us have learned an awful lot by failing many times, some less so. Is there a piece of advice that you learned along the way that you just wish someone had given to you earlier in your career that maybe could have made those lessons less painful? Yeah, thanks. I think there's two pieces that I reflect on. The first is pick your manager. So early on in our career, I think we tend to get really excited about an opportunity to work in a particular industry or at a particular company. And I think that I learned very early on that the relationship that you have with your manager really helps clarify the kind of experience that you're going to have in that job and like how much room you're going to be given to experiment and grow and whether you're going to be sort of mentored and fostered. So that's a very sort of, you know, nuts and bolts type of a thing. Not to say that you always get to pack your manager, because the other thing that I learned is as soon as you join a company, you should expect a rear roughly every six months or so. <laughs> but at least in that initial selection, I think that that's really important. The other thing that I would say is that I follow the fun. And what I mean is I mentioned that I wanted to be in information security. It took me a little while to find mm -hmm. That role. And I was very stressed out about it because even though I knew your first job after college isn't like your only job that you'll ever have, I felt, I just felt like if I couldn't make the leap then, I felt like I, I just wasn't going to get there. And that was not true at all. And then the next few jobs that I took felt very risky because they were like passion jobs, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, I want to work at Visa because I have no idea what they do there. And I want to see that place from the inside out, right? And so that was actually, that actually worked out really well for me. And I think sort of being able to give yourself a little grace that you will fall flat on your face sometimes, but you'll learn so much with all of those things, especially early in one's career, giving oneself a little bit of room to experiment and figure out what you like doing and what you don't like doing. I think that that's really critical for having a successful career. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I didn't have to pick my first job because the Air Force chose it for me. You got you know, a call <laughs> one that says, here's where you will be assigned. There you go. So if you look at the future of technology, what most excites you about the opportunities ahead of us? I mean, I just, you know, I grew up with a phone that was hooked to a wall and a really long cord walking back and forth. and I could not have imagined, I really couldn't have imagined. I read a lot of science fi fiction, Andy, yep. and I still could not really have predicted that, you know, so soon after that, I would have a supercomputer in my hand, right. basically attached to my hand, yeah. if you've spent any time <laughs> here with me. I never would have predicted this as a future. Even, you know, like 10 years ago, I'm not sure that I would have predicted that we are we're going to end up where we ended up. So I think what I'm just excited about related to the future technology is what I was excited about that got me here, which is, you know, what else can we do? What yeah. else can we do? Can we save the planet? Are we going to make, maybe we'll make our next planet. Maybe we'll make our next planet out of all of the garbage and then launch it into space, but like yeah. settle it in tiny homes. Who knows what's coming next? The, the creativity that we have empowered the world with that we continue to launch and the consequences of that too, of course. But I, I just remain hopeful that we're going to continue to build great things and find our way. 
But, you know, that's really excited. Now I have in the back of my head, Elon Musk is going to build like the plastic planet and it will all be your <laughs> idea. Well, I mean, I, the people make islands out of them. And anyway, my point is that what excites me is the fact that I, I don't, I don't have a strong prediction for where we're going right. to go. That is really but exciting. But we're going to continue to build on what got us here to get us wherever we're going. So at the end of the day, what do you do to unwind? I don't understand the question. <laughs> you don't have the end of the day. Like, this is a stressful job. There are things you have to do to reduce stress. Yes, for sure. So fun fact, I'm actually a yoga instructor. <laughs> so I really appreciated a lot of the concepts around mindfulness and wellness and sort of preventative healthcare, fitness. And so I liked it enough that I learned how to actually teach classes. So I do a lot of yoga. I work out. I have a, I have a Peloton. I do that quite a bit. And then the other thing that I realized is that I find my flow state in very hard cardio, but also when doing creative projects and pursuits. So I, you know, try and mess around with music every once in a while. And I've been picking up painting and things like that. So that is how I unwind. Yeah. I, I love that you have like hardcore things you do and then things like, oh, I'll just try this out and see how it goes. I think that that yeah. mix is often really beneficial. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So bit of free form. What's one piece of wisdom or advice you like to share with people does not have to be about technology. So I, I think that always be cross training. So ABC, like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross would have said always be closing, but I, I think always be cross-training or if you are in security, maybe always be contingency planning as well. But you mentioned early on that my career is interesting because I've spent time in kind of hardcore infosec, but then also these adjacencies. And I tell you, I just wouldn't give up those adjacencies and those experiences for anything. And I think that, you know, dabbling in product management, dabbling in being a, a quantitative modeler, all of those sort of experiences were adjacencies and they were, you know, they maybe helped shore something up on one side of the other around what I was doing. But I think I get a lot of enjoyment out of learning new things and mm -hmm. it creates value then for you later, financial value yeah. <laughs> in your career potentially. So I think that it's good because it's fun. I think it's good because it's a good learning experience. And I think that it's good because it will take you, it will propel your career in ways that you don't expect. Yep. I think it also leaves behind a more healthy organization because you help break down a barrier between security and wherever you're cross training. So even after you leave, that barrier isn't as, as hard as it was before you got there. That's true. Cause it's it, when you are cross training, typically you're not the only one who's cross training. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're a threat analyst from an infosec organization and you go sit with fraud analysts over in in that customer service or operational organization, you're learning from them, but they're also learning from yep. you. Yep. You're trading stories and metaphors. So I'd love that. Well, Allison, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day and joining us to share your wisdom. Thanks so much for the invitation, Andy. It was fun. You've been listening to the Cloud Security Reinvented Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Ellis, and I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you for checking out this episode of Cloud Security Reinvented, brought to you by Orca Security. 
Orca Security detects and prioritizes cloud security risks for AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud without the gaps in coverage, alert fatigue, and operational costs of agents. Please follow Cloud Security Reinvented wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or visit orca.security slash podcast to get immediate access to all of the latest episodes.